this sermon about love, I feel like I should just say, listen again to what Pastor Ben prayed at the beginning of that prayer, and you can just go home, because <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to say in the sermon tonight, God helping me. Would you turn with me in, in your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 13? We are now well into this big third section of Romans that deals with living the Christian life, living a life of gratitude to God for his great redemption in Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, Pastor Will taught us about, Pastor Will, that sounds so good, doesn't it? Where's Will? Pastor Will taught us about living the Christian life with our prayerful support of the proper work of the civil government, which is itself a ministry of God, primarily a ministry of his justice in the world. But submitting to and praying for civil authorities is only the beginning of the Christian life. And tonight's passage speaks to that larger area of obedience to Christ that every one of us faces really every day of our lives. So I'd like for you to pay close attention now to the reading of God's holy word from Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 8, continuing to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love each other, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let us pray. Lord, we pray for your spirit to bless our study of your word tonight. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief this evening, for we pray in Jesus' name for it. Amen. It was a rainy, cold afternoon in the winter of 1985. I was a a, a seminary student in Richmond, Virginia, And I was walking the half mile home from the nursing home where I had just ministered the gospel to several people in order to fulfill 
some pastoral care credits for my education. I was walking the half mile back to our apartment on Brook Road. The miserable weather was matching my miserable spirits that day. I had just read the Bible and prayed with several elderly residents who were near death, and frankly, they had no interest at all in the spiritual life or the promises of the gospel. In fact, it rather aggravated them that I was there. I felt like I was was feeding applesauce to a wildcat. There was no interest. I was no help to them. And I was now getting my feet wet. And by the time I came back to see them again the next week, they would both be dead. Well, I thought things couldn't get worse that afternoon, but as I approached our seminary housing that rainy day, lying on the wet sidewalk by the street, there was a small slip of paper which looked like it had been cut out of a newspaper. And I could see, even without bending over or picking it up, that there were four prominent letters in kind of uh, uh, big, big letters, L. O-V-E, love, love. And in my naivete and in my need that afternoon, I thought, well, maybe the Lord is providentially sending me a little message of encouragement on this gloomy, dreadful day. So I picked up the piece of wet paper and looked at it more closely. It was an advertisement for a pornographic video store. I've shared that story before here, perhaps in a Bible study at one point. You don't forget days like that. You wish you could. But I remember thinking as I held that slip in my hand that this was a moment that would somehow inform my ministry because it was clear in the nursing home, and it was clear on the dirty city street that day, it was clear in my own troubled heart that this question of love, what constitutes real love for others, love for God, love from God, that somehow the rest of my life would center on those issues circling around that one word, love. And I mean, we have good company in that, don't we? For our Lord Jesus said that the sum of God's law and his prophets was all bound up in the word love, the twofold commandment, which we've already heard this evening. Love for God, love for neighbor. And so if this word is being used so powerfully by Christ and so widely, we might even say promiscuously, in our culture today, it's an important question. What is love? Definitions begin to really matter here. Now Paul begins this section this evening by saying, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, two shocking things immediately present themselves here. First is the idea that we owe love to each other. Now, 
many commentaries sort of pause after the first few words here. Owe no one anything. And they go on to conclude from that that one should never take out a loan or have any financial debt ever. But that topic is, first of all, not what is being discussed here. And it is a misapplication to assume such a comprehensive rule from the whole New Testament, which, after all, positively commends loaning money to others. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 5 does that. The real point Paul is making here in any case is that what is universally owed to other people is love. Now, this is shocking. We owe people love? You mean love isn't a favor that we pay to those people whom we've already started to like a lot? Won't we become a sap, a a, a gullible sort of dope, a flower child hippie if we actually try to practice love for everyone? And anyway, isn't love based on what I feel for others, not what I owe others? How how is love a debt that we owe to others? Human beings are created in the divine image. They are, we are, in some sense, the very reflection of God himself. Though, of course, every one of us is now a warped reflection due to sin. And some humans are so hideously deformed in Such evil distortions of that reflection we can only assume by faith that they are images of God at all anymore. They are like those pennies that my father used to leave on the railroad track as a boy in Camden, South Carolina to see the train run over them. You know, the image of Lincoln on the penny was gone, but somehow you sort of knew it was still a penny. So we have to love our neighbors without qualification, they're not divine, we're we're not divine, but we all in some manner have the impress of divinity. And so we owe people love, for we are to love everything that rightly belongs to God. But to be clear, if, as we so often do today, We think love is based on an already existing warm feeling that we have. Well, then this command to love everyone is quite impossible at a practical level. It could only have been issued by a clueless deity or by a tyrannical God. But what if love is not a feeling that sweeps over you but is at its core A fitting action based in response to the character of one's creator as it's expressed particularly in his commands, his holy laws. So now this is the second shocker. Not only is love something we owe, it is defined by what we do acting in accordance with the laws of God. Paul's first sentence here says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. 
So in the biblical point of view, love is an action which is rooted in response and an obedience to God. Now Paul's not saying here, don't make any mistake as some Christians do, by saying you can substitute an undefined love for obeying the Ten Commandments. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you pay the debt of love that you owe to others, it will consist of obeying the moral law. That is, the Ten Commandments in their full exposition. This intimate connection between law and love and love and law tells us that love is not, in fact, a sentimental, here-today-gone-tomorrow, feeling-based phenomenon. You know, pop songs speak of falling in and out of love, and we know what that sort of means, but of course, actual love isn't like that at all. Actual love, truly defined, has a kind of weight to it. It has that same gravitas that seared the top of the holy mountain and caused the earth to shake like a tuning fork at the giving of God's holy law. Love is solid. It's not airy. It's not gauzy. It's based in eternity, not in a fleeting moment of feeling. On the flip side, this love-law dynamic also tells us that keeping the commandments of God is not some kind of mere spiritual etiquette. It's not mere polite rule-keeping. Instead, it is exactly how we love others and glorify our God. As we say in our Reformed lingo, this is the third use of the law. The life of love, the keeping of law. Law and love are not enemies. In fact, they define each other in this very way that I'm describing. So, this first section of our passage, verses 8 through 10, I have labeled the lawfulness of love. The lawfulness of love. Puritan commentator Matthew Henry sweepingly declared, Love is a living, active principle of obedience to the whole law. Now Paul has already given one description of love in this letter to the Romans back in the 12th chapter, verses 9 through 13, which I would call not the lawfulness of love, but the culture of Christian love. Back in chapter 12, he wrote, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. Culture of Christian love. Make no mistake, underlying that, that warm and energetic and affectionate and hospitable culture of the church is to be the, the righteous lawfulness of true love, which is based on nothing less than the very righteous love of our God Himself. 
God's righteous commands both propel and guide our efforts to love. And yes, I said efforts because love is a verb in our faith before it is ever a noun. We love in obedience to Christ who loved us in obedience to his Father. It was not Christ's warm, tender feelings for us that saved us, wonderful though they are, and we sang about some of them in that that new hymn of the month. But it was his obedience. Our love of God's law comes from the experience of that free and unmerited grace that streamed to us from his perfect cross-bearing obedience. Dr. Barclay made that crucial point in his first Exodus sermon on the Ten Commandments where he pointed out that the Ten Commandments begin not with a commandment at all but with a reminder that the God who commands them at Sinai is the same God who loved his people into liberation in Egypt in the book of the Exodus, beginning of that book. It all begins, you see, with grace. God already has a gracious relation to his people before issues, uh, before he issues that law on Mount Sinai. And here in Romans 13, the apostle further develops this powerful connection between love and law in the verses that follow. He write, Paul writes, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now Dr. Bar- Barclay also chose the truly perfect rock and roll song to make his point in that sermon that day, the 1980s band Foreigner singing the song, I want to know what love is. And no, I'm not going to sing it. I could. I'm not going to do that. Of course, the songwriter had a particular kind of love in view, shall we say, which we'll not describe further tonight. But it is still the the right question to ask, what is love? I want to know what love is. Now, we've seen so far this evening that love is what we owe to others and that it's fulfilled by keeping the holy laws of God. For instance, we're to love our spouses. This is just the... The, the floor, it's not the ceiling of it all, but it's the beginning. We are to love our spouses by not ever committing adultery. You see, we owe them that. This is not what the world always assumes about adultery. I remember the poetic and gripping film, The Prince of Tides, based on the famous book by Pat Conroy. It was full of classic Southern family pain. I'll never forget that final scene in the movie when Nick Nolte, playing Tom Wingo, this deeply troubled football coach, drives over the the bridge in Charleston and shouts out with gratitude the name of Barbara Streisand's character, his therapist named Lowenstein, with whom he'd had an affair, as they say, and thereby found some kind of, of personal liberation or growth or something. 
That's not what love is, according to our Creator. Or we're told we should not murder. And that includes all the obvious things, but it also includes murdering a person's reputation by kind of quietly throwing them under the bus behind their back. Backstabbing is not what love is either, says the living God. It also says you shall not steal. And that includes all the obvious things, but it also includes taking credit from others that doesn't belong to you in your workplace or stealing time from people by continually showing up to meetings late. That's not merely being time blind as some postmodern apologists for sin have recently declared. It's a sin. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. It's not what love is, according to God. And the tablet of God reads, you shall not covet. For when we desire what others have, we no longer can love them well and put their interests first. We see a perfect example of this in Joshua chapter 7 in the case of Achan and the of ancient Israel, who, when he was in a war party that had been commanded by God to utterly destroy the Canaanite encampment, including all their possessions, but he just couldn't do it. He found some gold and silver bars along in the spoil, along with this, this beautiful cloak, and he so coveted them, so he secretly squirrels them away. And according to the Lord's analysis, that led directly to the defeat on the battlefield at Ai, including 36 dead Hebrews. So Joshua, their their leader, found him out and had Achan stoned to death by the people. And the stones were piled there to this day, the text says, as a continual reminder, a permanent marker that coveting is not a private sin but spills into the lives of others in hurtful, destructive ways. Just ask the voters of New Jersey about gold bars and coveting right now. Some of you know what I'm referring to. All of these commands, which as we would say form the second table of the law, the the part of the law about duties to others, what we owe them in true love, All of these righteous commands tell us what we're not to do. Or as Paul says in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So the first rule of love is do no harm. Do no harm. But of course our larger catechism teaches us that these same commandments have many positive aspects as well. Aspects to positively protect the lives, the health, the property, and the reputations of both ourselves and others. True ethics, true love, that is, involves ten commands. And yet each of those fulsome commands is so broad, it's so deep. If someone really did ask me tonight, Pastor, I want to know what love is. I'd honestly urge them, to read the Westminster Larger Catechism's treatment of the Ten Commandments. That's exactly what love looks like. And if someone replies to that, oh, that's that's too involved, that takes too much reading, 
studying. I'd have to Google some 17th century words. And I'd say, look, don't ask a serious question if you don't want a serious answer. These rules of love, these commands that shape and define real love, are summed up, Paul says in verse 9, with this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice the language of neighbor, both here and in verse 10. You see, we're not called to love only our fellow Christians. That is what Paul and the other New Testament writers more typically emphasize. Sixteen times we're told in the New Testament to love one another or love the brethren, speaking of the church. But then, in this case tonight, in both these places and in the parable of the Good Samaritan and in several other places, we see an emphasis on love for neighbors, which is really anybody I have any connection with at all, including just being a human being. Now, certainly the, the highest expression of such love for neighbor is in Christian missions, both here in this community and around the world. That is love extended. But friends, it also involves a theology of the common good. It involves loving others through all kinds of opportunities involving work and employment and culture and art and politics and neighborliness. In this area, in this area of the theology of the common good, it seems to me our conservative churches have never been terribly strong. Nobody else has, by the way. Goodness, the liberals mess it all up. But it, it just impresses me that this is a tough area. We don't do uh, common good theology uh, really well. We know what we're against. Homosexual marriages, transgenderism, pornography, abortion, tick-tock. But what are we for? How do we articulate a truly biblical vision of the common good without trampling on the consciences of individuals, without sinking into partisan political advocacy that needlessly divides God's people? I know some scholars have written on this subject. Perhaps the most famous in our tradition is Abraham Kuyper. I don't agree with Kuyper about everything, but he did try to articulate a theology of the common good. I'm trying to repent of my uh, deadness in this area. I've decided to do more than complain about politicians who undermine trust in elections and depending on whether the election went their way or not. So I've volunteered to be a, a precinct volunteer. Um, so I'll probably see some of you guys at, at the uh, voting booth next year. I mean, it's nothing really, but it's something. So these first three verses declare the lawfulness of love. The next four verses, verses 11 to 14, preach the timeliness of love. The lawfulness of love and the timeliness of love. Now I would suggest this idea too is a shock to our system. 
We all, as, as Westerners, we naturally assume, I think especially since the Enlightenment, we assume that love at its best is a timeless, ageless, abstract kind of platonic idea of human affections. It's a high and elevated thought that lives in abstraction. But biblical love is powerfully shaped and quickened by a sense of the urgent spiritual time that we're in and the inbreaking kingdom of God. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is what love is. To love the promise of His coming. And to act accordingly. That starts not with knowing the precise time of his coming. We do not. But the nature of the time in which we're living right now is what we need to know. I think the the New International Version translation rightly translates that sense in this verse. It says this, and do this understanding the present time. Now, Jesus critiqued his own generation for being skilled at predicting the weather by the signs they could see in the sky, but unable to read the moral and spiritual signs of their day. Every age that humans live in has both light and dark in it, and ours is no different. To be clear, it is not the nearness on the calendar of Christ's return that so excites us, It is the magnitude of the event itself which overshadows the time between now and then. You know, it's so interesting. 2,000 years ago, Paul emphasized the light of God appearing in in the future of the Roman believers. He said, salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Well, my friends, if that were... If that was true then, how much more is it true now? How much closer is Christ's glorious, stupendous return? So, we will not get drunk to the degree we anticipate Christ's return. We can avoid sexual promiscuity when we really believe our bridegroom is coming for us. We can reject hateful caricatures of those we differ with when we know that the only one who can truly discern the heart and the only one who will omnisciently separate the sheep from the goats on the day of judgment is near at hand. And he comes with his equity and his grace and his reward and his vengeance. And so, beloved, the, the day 
as the old hymn says, is brightening in the West. Every day matters now. The dawn of the eternal day surely approaches. When I was a young man, I loved to go with my three or four friends uh, who liked, we hunted ducks together and we would get up at 3.30 in the morning and we would drive down to Aiken, South Carolina and pitch black and uh, finally find the place to park up, up in this field and then we had this long road to walk before we finally arrived at the swamp where the wood ducks were. It was total darkness. All we had was our flashlights, which we had to kill as soon as we got there because the ducks were, were up in the swamp. And we had to be totally silent as we waited for the dawn. And as the light began to come up, the ducks began to get active. With the light came the excitement, came the activity that we were there for. The action began. Paul says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. The apostle wants the Romans, he wants us to know that the costly, lifelong quest to love God and neighbor as Christ did is all worth it because the time of his coming draws nearer and nearer. The action, the great action is soon to start. The Christian singer whom God used to convert me to Christ almost a half century ago had a song that shook me up in a good way entitled, Asleep in the Light. I've used these words before, but this is the song, not the foreigner song, I really want to stick in your mind. Keith Green wrote, Oh, can't you see it's such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. So, To conclude this sermon, hopefully before the Lord returns. This emphasis on the return of the Lord gives us two critical things. The first thing it does is it energizes us to a life of obedient love. Casting off the works of darkness. Putting on the armor of light. The righteousness of God's commands. For we are already living in the growing light of his return and the action of the last day draws nearer. Secondly, though we work for and we pray for blessing in the world, public justice, generosity and peace and kindness between all people, we know we will never attain it so much that we don't need Christ to come and return, delivering us fully into the new heavens and the new earth. Now here we differ from those on the left who look to a man-made utopia of the future engineered by technology and government action. And here we differ from those on the right who imagine a man-centered patriotic utopia of the golden American past. As one 
Bible scholar perfectly said, unless love is tempered by the hope of God's final redemption, it will turn into an instrument of ideological tyranny and fearful self-righteousness. Christians, he wrote, therefore, in Paul's view, are creatures of the future, not the past. Amen. We are creatures of the future. Brothers and sisters, creatures of the future, hear this good news tonight. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us love and sing and wonder. And let all our love for others be both lawful and timely and therefore filled with hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have given us all we need to love others. You have broken our hearts of stone by the grace of the new covenant. You have opened us up uh, in this way to a new life, animated, dependent on your spirit, animated by your spirit, and yet guided by your word, particularly your word and your commandments. We thank you for all your holy law that is itself an expression of your love. And we're thankful for Jesus Christ who bore the penalty of our law-breaking, that we might become the sons and daughters of God, obeying God from the heart, your very laws now written upon them. We thank you for this stupendous grace, and we look forward, O Jesus, to your coming again in great glory to establish the fullness of your kingdom in all eternity. May that day come soon, Lord. Come soon. In your name we pray. Amen.